Welcome to another exciting episode of Give Me Those Star Wars, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and later on this episode, I will be joined by my good friend and former guest of the show, Kyle Benning. Back in 2015, before Star Wars The Force Awakens smashed into theaters and kicked off this whole new era of Star Wars fandom... Back then, Give Me Those Star Wars didn't exist. I hosted a different Star Wars podcast, my first podcast, in fact, called Dead Bothan Spies. I cringe at the thought of some of the earliest episodes of that show when I had no idea what I was doing, when I didn't have Skype recording software, when I was just recording in-person and online conversations on my cell phone. How did I ever survive that experience? But... There's also a whole lot about that old podcast that I loved and still love because it was so fresh and so new to me. And because the new movies hadn't come out, I was just throwing myself bodily into the topics that I loved. And one of those topics was the Star Wars comic series Tales of the Jedi, published by Dark Horse Comics in the mid-1990s. I loved this comic. It hit me at a time when I was just discovering new Star Wars stories, and this was really out there, really different, because it was set in the far past. But then, after the prequel movies and the video games set in the days of the Old Republic, it seemed like this Dark Horse comic set 4,000 years before the adventures of Luke Skywalker was largely forgotten. Except it wasn't forgotten by Kyle, and it wasn't forgotten by me. In September 2015, we recorded Tales of the Jedi Part 1, in which we reviewed the first two issues of Tales of the Jedi, covering the story called Ulic Keldroma and the Beast Wars of Onderon. We never got around to Part 2. The plan was to cover the rest of the Tales of the Jedi series, one arc at a time, but it never happened. And then Kyle messaged me almost six years later and asked, Are we ever going to get back to those comics? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. The question then was, do we redo the first two issues since it's been so many years since we covered that first arc? Kyle and I both listened to that old episode of Dead Boff and Spies, which you can still find on Apple Podcasts, and we agreed that the audio sounds fine. So I've taken a chunk of that episode where we discuss Tales of the Jedi, I've basically chopped off the news and listener feedback segment at the end, and I'm going to drop it here so you can get caught up on the early adventures of the Jedi Knights of the old, old, old Republic. After you hear part one, I'll drop a promo, and then Kyle and I come back to discuss Tales of the Jedi issues three through five, which is known as the Saga of Nomi Sunrider. Hope you enjoy this. Good morning. Nice of you guys to drop by. We're doomed. It's a trap. Chewie, get us out of here. We would be honored if you would join us. Charming. Cut the lungs. This time you pack on two fronts. I got a bad feeling about this. Hello, what have we here? Red 5 standing by. This is our rescue. You must fear the 
force around you. I don't know what you're talking about. I am a Jedi, like my father before me. I like the sound of that. The force will be with you. Welcome to Dead Bothan Spies, a Star Wars podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and in a couple of minutes, I'll be joined, once again, by Kyle Benning from the podcast King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun. What are we going to talk about? Well, it's a topic I've wanted to cover since this podcast began way back in January, and it's a topic that Kyle and I talked about discussing four months ago, and this is the Star Wars series Tales of the Jedi, published by Dark Horse Comics. Tales of the Jedi began in 1993 as a five-issue limited series that sort of spun out of Dark Empire, Dark Horse's first major comic book miniseries for Star Wars. After that, Tales of the Jedi continued in a series of, well, miniseries for a total of 34 issues published between 1993 and 1998. The entire series was set between six and 4,000 years before the adventures of Luke Skywalker and his friends, at a time when the Galactic Republic was young and the Jedi Knights were strong. The first major saga followed the rise and fall of a group of Jedi heroes and explored the mysteries of the dark side of the Force, culminating in the Great Sith War. Later stories in the series would backtrack to reveal the origins of the Sith. Now, if you've been listening to recent episodes of this podcast, you've heard me complain about the role of the Sith in the Star Wars films and Expanded Universe. I've also complained that the Jedi became overexposed and definitely overpowered in a lot of the Star Wars fiction that came out during this era, and, you know, since. I ought to hate this series for its emphasis on aspects of the Star Wars mythos that I find problematic at best, But I don't hate it. I didn't hate it back in the 90s when I first read it. This was one of my regular Star Wars fixes. I read Tales of the Jedi to get more stories about the Force, and I read X-Wing Rogue Squadron to get more stories about space battles. It's been a while since I've read this series, though. There are things that I remember vividly and fondly, and there's a lot of stuff that I expect to surprise me when I turn the page. If you read the series, I hope you have a good time revisiting it with Kyle and I. And if you've never read Tales of the Jedi, then come with us to a galaxy far, far away and a time even longer ago. Okay, that sounds dumb as shit. Star Wars Tales of the Jedi Issue 1 was published by Dark Horse Comics and came out on October 19, 1993. Issue 2 came out on November 16th that same year. Both issues sported beautiful painted covers by Dave Dorman and a $2.50 price tag. And if you listen closely, you can hear Professor Allen choking right now. That's ten comic books. (laughs) This two-part story arc was written by Tom Veach, penciled by Chris Gossett, inked by Mike Barrero, colored by Pamela Rambo, and lettered by Willie Schubert. Kyle, can you give us the opening crawl from issue one? Yeah. Ulick Keldroma and the Beast Wars of Onderon. Millennia ago, the discovery of hyperspace travel brought the galaxy together, giving birth to a democratic union of star systems known as the Galactic Republic. From the time of its inception, the Republic grew over thousands of years to encompass vast numbers of inhabited worlds. 
The survival of the Republic depended on two factors, the wise governing of selfless administrators and lawmakers, and the preservation of harmony and justice by a heroic warrior fraternity, the Jedi Knights. In those glorious ancient days, a great many Force-sensitive individuals willingly entered arduous training under accomplished Jedi Masters, taking up the weapons, the knowledge, and the powers of the Jedi Way. Join us now as we explore the secret histories recorded in the Jedi Holocron, tales of an age when the Jedi Knights were numerous and strong. 4,000 years before Luke Skywalker destroyed the Death Star, Jedi Master Arka Jeth has created a small training camp on the planet Arcania. His three students are the humans Ulik Keldroma and his brother Kay, and the Twi'lek Tat Danita. Master Arka tells the three Jedi trainees the history of Onderon, a planetary system named for its one habitable world. The planet has three moons, one of which has an atmosphere and some crazy orbital patterns. Long, long ago, that moon, called Daksun, came close enough to share atmospheres with Onderon. During this period, the wild, savage, and monstrous beasts of Daksun migrated to Onderon and began preying upon the human inhabitants. To defend themselves from the beast, the people of Onderon built a giant wall around their fledgling civilization. As more time passed, the walled city of Iziz became one massive fortress housing the millions of Onderonian humans. Concurrently with the growth of Iziz, the Onderonians began the practice of exiling their criminals to the wilderness outside the walls. For a while, the exiles made easy prey for the beasts, but over time, the outcasts captured and tamed some of the savage monsters. The outcasts eventually formed armies and used their monstrous mounts to attack Iziz in what has become known as the Beast Wars. Master Arca concludes his story by announcing the Galactic Republic has named him Watchman of the Onderon system and asked that a Jedi help resolve the Beast Wars. As their final test, Arca sends Ulik, Kay, and Tadanita to Onderon in his stead. The trio of young Jedi fly to Onderon in their ship, the Nebulan Ranger. Before landing at Iziz, the Nebulan Ranger is attacked by beast riders mounted on flying creatures. Ulik Keldroma refused to open fire on the attackers, as Master Arca sent them to bring peace to the world. The ship flies through the swarm of beasts, and the city's defenses turn the attackers away. When the Nebulan Ranger lands, the three Jedi are greeted by Novar, the Minister of State. The Onderonians have a powerful distrust of non-humans, though, and security guards almost arrest Tat Danita on sight before the Queen countermands the order. Ulik and the others are taken to the royal throne room of Queen Amanoa. While the Queen appears ancient, her lovely daughter Galia is an attractive, and presumably legal, 18. Suddenly, the flying beast riders who attack the Nebulan Ranger return, having exploited an unknown weakness in the city's defenses. They attack the royal throne, forcing the queen and her daughter to hide while the Jedi fight the beast riders. During the battle, a pair of beast commandos make their way effortlessly to the queen's chambers. Although the Jedi fight valiantly, the beast commandos manage to kidnap Princess Gallia. Ulik Keldroma swears to Queen Amanoa that the Jedi will rescue her daughter. But Kay and Tot suspect the situation is more complicated and more sinister than it seems. And that is where issue one ends, the first part of Ulik Keldroma and the Beast Wars of Onderon. And instead of diving into our uh, analysis, let's just go ahead and finish up this story arc. So, Kyle, you want to take over part two? Yep, we have the second crawl here, which says... 4,000 years before the time of Luke Skywalker, the Jedi Knights were the most powerful and respected force in the galaxy. 
In those days, a Jedi master named Arca of Arcania sent three of his apprentices on a mission of peace and justice. The three young Jedi are Ulic Keldroma, his brother Kay Keldroma, and the Twi'lek Tat Donita. Aboard their ship, the Nebulon Ranger, they cross the vastness of hyperspace to an untamed world called Onderon. As the three Jedi Knights meet with Queen Aminoa, ruler of Aziz, the Beast Lords stage an unexpected attack on the Royal Citadel, and the Queen's daughter Gallia is kidnapped. Overriding the misgivings of his companions, Ulic Keldroma decides to pursue the abductors. As the Nebulon Ranger takes to the skies over Andoran's wild forest, a seeker torpedo, fired from the ground, finds its target. All right, and then the plot summary for issue two here, which I took from the Star Wars Wikia. Ulic and Kay Keldroma and Tat Donita crash land in the Onderon Wildlands, and after taming some native Bomas, head to the Beast Lord Mandun Kira's citadel, where Gallia is in the middle of being married to Modan's son, Orin. Ulic attempts to rescue her, but she claims she wants to be married to Orin. Modan settles things down and schedules a wedding banquet to discuss things with the three Jedi. Orin explains that 400 years ago, a dark Jedi named Freedon Nad became king of Onderon, beginning a long line of darkness in the Aziz royalty. The Jedi, Gallia and Orin, head back to Aziz to convince Queen Aminoa to end this war, but she sends them away using ancient Sith magic. The peaceful solution having failed, Modan Kira gathers the Beast Lords from across Onderon to attack Aziz. Meanwhile, Kay Keldroma has his arm cut off by Aminoa's royal guard, and Aminoa herself heads deep down below the palace to the tomb of Freedon Nad. Ulic carries his brother into a dark corridor, where Kay detaches a droid's arm and takes it as his own. High above Aziz, Jedi Master Arka Jeth uses his battle meditation to turn the tide of the battle, bringing victory to the Beast Riders. Ulic, Kay, Tat, Arka, Gala, and Orin go down into the mausoleum of Freedon Nad, where Aminoa is instantly killed by the light given off by Master Arka. Princess Gallia soon marries Orin Kira, ending the Beast Wars of Andoran, as well as Isis's 400-year reign of darkness. Okay, uh, we're going to get through a few things here, but first, the title, Ulic Keldroma, or Ulic, depending on how it's pronounced, Ulic Keldroma and the Beast Wars of Onderon. I freaking love this title. Yes. <laughs> it's so... It's so old-fashioned, but it's so, like, all sorts of fantasy, everything you love. Like That is like a headline right out of, like, a Conan, a Conan pulp tale from ex- Weird Tales back in the 30s. Exactly, and I swear, this is what I wanted, like, Star Wars Episode One to be called. Like, something crazy like this that would just let you know exactly what you're in for. I wish that would have been called, like, Obi-Wan Kenobi and the Beast Wars of Onderon or something like that. You could have taken this story. Yeah, that would have been cool. Um, so, yeah, I, I love that. Names that I don't like so much, Frieden Nad. <laughs> it's, yeah. I, it's almost like freedom. They just change one last letter. And it's the same as the first letter of the next name, so they kind of allied, and it's just this... It's a hard name to say, because when you say it, you think you're mispronouncing something. And it's just... No, that's that's a name that might look good when you're writing it on a typewriter or a computer, but when you actually say that aloud, it's like, no, that's a stupid name, Frieden Nad. Ah, it's, no, it's it, a dumb it name. It gets worse. Just wait till we get to the Frieden Nad uprising. Ah, uh, yeah, we will. It, it'll, yes. <laughs> Yeah, then we have to say it. Uh, your thoughts on the story? I absolutely love this one. This 
just hits me in all the feel goods. It's you dive right in. Uh, the force elements are mysterious. You kind of, whoa, these are kind of tribal Jedi. Um, it very much invokes kind of that pulp adventure swashbuckler feel with, you know, going against kind of these dark ominous forces. I mean, it just very much kind of reminds me of a Conan story or mm-hmm. kind of like a masters of the universe, mini comic story. Um, from yeah. How dark it is. And what's really funny, I guess, looking at the art is it's very well rigged so, or rendered. Everything is very well in proportion. So, uh, keep that in mind when I say it looks very stereotypical nineties, <laughs> Part of that's the coloring, but um, many of these guys' outfits, which are actually fitting for the story, they really kind of invoke almost like a samurai look with like their wrist gauntlets and kind of shoulder pad armor that actually makes sense. Yeah. Um, so it actually makes sense here, but it very much reminds you of some of the supporting characters of like the X-Force comic as far as their costume designs. Whereas it didn't make sense in that, it, it does make sense here. Obviously, much better, well-rendered than the Marvel's nineties house style. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, some of these are just, the pages are just so fun to look at. It's like samurai warriors meet dino riders. I mean, you get guys riding on essentially pterodactyls that have triceratops heads. <laughs> it's so good. It's so, and it, it's something that immediately it's like, we think we, because star Wars is so, inclusive for all of these different ideas like it it might not be the first thing you think of but no there were plenty of times when like people were riding animals in star wars like the sand people riding banthas the stormtroopers riding dubex the rebels riding tauntauns like there were all these examples in the movies of people like domesticating these crazy foreign larger than life monstrous animals and it's like yeah this works and it works for this story that is set in a more primitive time and a primitive place. Yeah, definitely. Kay Caldroma really kind of reminds me of Longshot with a uh, Magneto Acolyte uh, headset. <laughs> <laughs> so. We get, so we get four Jedi in this story, sort of the three apprentices. And it's really clear from the get-go who these people are, what their personality types are. And yeah. you, you contrast that with some of the Jedi from the, the prequel films and the Clone Wars, and you see instantly... Uh, well, before we even... like A reader from somebody who had read Dark Empire would have had a little bit of foreknowledge who Keldroma is. In fact, they would have known a lot more. It was teased in the back matter for Dark Empire number 5, was that? Yep. Yeah, in the that was his first appearance. Yeah, then Tom Beach sort of explained this sort of story of Ulic Keldroma, who was this fallen Jedi 4,000 years ago. And this whole story was kind of chronicled to Leia through the holocron of how Ulic, you know, decided to investigate this dark and sinister society called the Krath um, that was practicing the dark side and how he was going to root out this this corruption inside this society and destroy it from within and how everybody said this was the wrong thing to do everybody thought this was a mistake but he was going to do it because he was headstrong and he was arrogant and then nobody saw him for a year and the next time they saw him he had completely fallen to the dark side and this was just a, a footnote a text piece in the back of an issue of Dark Empire yeah so how those books worked is very similar thing. Post Return of the Jedi, the Emperor 
Is it in the first one already? He's cloned, right? He's come back, he's cloned. Or is that not till the second one? Is that how the first book ends? It might be. God, they're just bleeding together. Yeah. But um you know, the the remnants of the Empire have gathered again on Coruscant and that is a almost like the the cave in Dagobah kind of a housing or area where the dark side is strong and there's kind of this space hurricane thing <laughs> that uh loop follows back to this uh, center and he's intent on destroying the remnants of the empire once and for all and destroying the Sith and a stronghold. And so he goes to, I think it's gotta be the first one, the first series at least, right? It's not dark empire two. the, we had the clone of the empire. No, no, no. He was definitely in the first one. Okay. Yeah. Because then Luke goes there, he's going to destroy this emperor clone and Leia goes after him, and then she finds the Jedi holocron that the clone of the Emperor has, right? And she takes it back with her, yeah. and she starts exploring it, and the, the holocron is telling her all the tales of these past Jedi, which is then what spins this miniseries, this first two-parter out of the, the five issues, and then the, the ongoing set of miniseries are all stories that are contained within that holocron then. Mm-hmm. And so that really set the stage for that. So yeah, obviously... Uh, there's some symmetry there as Luke is essentially trying to do the, the same thing Caldroma uh, did uh, mm-hmm. eventually further down in his uh, storyline. And Leia is trying to stop him from making that same mistake. So, I mean, there you had some connection between two of the, the Dark Horse titles. But again, like we had talked in a, another episode, there was still a wide variety of almost genres or tones that Dark Horse was putting out that you could explore. You could describe it as like 33 issues all to explain, like all kind of hidden in this holocron that explains why Leia was afraid that Luke would fall to the dark side when he joined the Emperor. Yeah. So yep. <laughs> it's all like this this really deep backstory that they're just like, hey, you know what, that's kind of interesting, let's explore that. So, um, so they do, and that leads to when we first meet... Ulick on the first page, he is described in the same way, in the same words as being headstrong and arrogant. Um, we see him training. He's strong, but he's cocky. He's he's confident. He's you know he's sure of himself. We know who this guy is. And then we see his brother Kay, who is much more technical minded. Right from the beginning, he's he's a Jedi Knight. He's he's almost as skilled as his brother, but he's much more focused on these electronics. He's he's taking apart droids and stuff. It's clear. It's right from the beginning. It's like okay, this is how these two brothers are different. We never saw how Obi Wan and Anakin were that different. We never saw how Qui Gon was different. We didn't get these like these simple basic character traits. No, we get one-off lines and then that's never really explained or shown on screen. Mm-hmm. We get a exposition piece that tells us this character doesn't like this. Right. And yeah, the, between these first two stories are these first two issues here that make up this first story. There's so much more plot and character development than what we see in the first movie. I would have much rather seen this adapted, like you said, into Obi-Wan and the Beasts of Onderon or something mm-hmm. like that. We do get some exploration of the dark side. We hear this guy, Frida Nad, has basically created, like, just has, like, fostered this long lineage of the dark side and the Sith in this place. And it has corrupted the queen, Amanoa, for however long she's been alive. And this crazy thing happens by the end of the story that the mere presence of a light side Jedi. Of, of Master Arca's power. Just when he walks in the room, she can't take it. Yep. 
if Yoda had gone to the second Death Star and been in the same room as Palpatine, would the Emperor have just crumbled? He would have had that uh, opening the Ark of the Covenant moment <laughs> in the throne room. That's, that seems to be what it looks like. I don't know how I feel about that. I, on one hand, I didn't need another lightsaber battle because we, we get enough of those like in every other story. But it felt a little anticlimactic. Yeah, it kind of did. Um, but it, I don't know, it was also just so much different uh, for me, I guess. I mean, it kind of harkened back to along the lines of Yoda is this guy is so powerful. He's moved beyond wielding a lightsaber mm-hmm. as his conduit of power. His, his body is a living weapon with the Force. He's like the Bruce Lee of the Force. <laughs> the art is very much of its time. But like looking at these these costume designs, they're not wearing the same drab brown robes. They do have these like padding and shoulder pads. But it, you're right; it looks it's reminiscent of like feudal Japanese armor. That makes sense with what this idea is about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it definitely invokes some of that style of the other high selling books at the time. But it's so much more well rendered in each character, and you know. Even the the armed forces have, you know, features that uh, distinguish them, that Mm -hmm. make them look unique, and they really pop off the page. I remember the first time I read this really, really liking Tot Danita, their their Twi'lek buddy. Um, For one thing, like, I liked the fact that he has this sort of communion with the animals, that he's the one who's able to sort of subdue the, the Boma, these beasts. Um, but also just because of the the association that I had with this this species, this race was from Return of the Jedi, where we saw Bib Fortuna as Jabba's you know major domo, his stooge, and the the exotic dancer. I saw this alien species as kind of dark and sinister and bad, and now we've got one that looks the same, except he's a Jedi and he's noble, and he's cautious and he's thoughtful. And I was like, wow, that's that was like that's a really cool take that I didn't expect. It's also kind of neat to see the uh a bit of the, the xenophobia. Mm-hmm. Just a, another added depth to this universe and this world that we just met we've never heard of before and you know, we get a bit of the the class struggle or the power struggle and even, you know, some of the social beliefs I guess of, of the ruling society. Other thoughts on this two-part story? Um, if you haven't read it, go uh, track it down. It's been out there. It's been uh, reprinted, which I believe is how uh, you read those stories mm. for this time. Well, I, I originally I originally read them in their single issues before they were collected. And uh, the first five issues, we mentioned this, the first five issues of Tales of the Jedi, which was at the time just called Tales of the Jedi, they were reprinted a couple of times. Those five issues were in a collection called, at first just called Tales of the Jedi, the collection. And then I think in subsequent reprintings, it was rebranded Tales of the Jedi, Knights of the Old Republic, which caused a little bit of confusion because shortly thereafter, they released a video game called Knights of the Old Republic, which was not set in the same time period or with the same characters. And then the story was eventually collected in Dark Horse's Star Wars Omnibus, Tales of the Jedi, Volume 1, uh, which is what I'm currently looking at right here. 
I just I like the purity of this two-part story. It's such a classic story. Yes, they're sent to broker this piece, and they realize that the side they thought they were working for was actually the bad side, and they have to they have to stand with the resistant, the exiles, the outcasts. That they're the ones that are really truly heroic. You could adapt this into a movie, and it would be better than half of the Star Wars movies we've had so far. <laughs> uh, agreed. <laughs> I'm glad you're here to tell us these things. There's some interesting ads here. I'm just looking at uh, stuff in here. So, I mean, these were still in the fairly uh, infancy days of Dark Horse as we'd come to know it. So there's some talk about the new Legends line, which would have been uh, launched by Art Adams, Frank Miller, uh, John Byrne, Paul Chadwick, Jeff Darrow, Dave Gibbons, and Mike Mignola. And so there's talk about that. We None have an of those ad. guys ever accomplished anything noteworthy? <laughs> nope. There's... Uh, in the in the first issue, there's an ad for the Dark Empire trade paperback. There's also a new trade paperback, Classic Star Wars. Feast your eyes on the classic newspaper strips by writer Archie Goldwyn, Goodwin, excuse me, and artist Al Williamson. And these reformatted strips feature brand new art and are appearing completely in color for the first time. There's a Aliens vs. Predator Super Nintendo game, which was awesome. Holiday wish list, um, some other Dark Horse comics that were coming out. You ready for the top one on here? Luke Giaconetti's going to get all excited. <laughs> okay. God's, Godzilla versus Charles Barkley. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> None of the other ones are really worth uh, mentioning. And then uh, in the second one, there's a Frank Nelson City ad for uh, A Dame to Kill For. Mm. Um, the all-new six-issue miniseries. Sin City t-shirt featuring Marv. And then a Sin City postcard collection. And then more talk of the uh, Legends line. Hmm. Thanks for digging those out. That's really cool. Yeah. So. Okay. Uh, thank you for joining me on this uh, first real talk of Tales of the Jedi, Kyle. The Fire and Water Podcast Network is a collection of super friends plus shag. So what could be more appropriate than a podcast about the super friends? It's For All Mankind, a Super Friends podcast, a read-through show about the classic DC comic book series covering all 47 issues of the original run, plus a few surprises. Hosted by me, Rob Kelly, and a rotating group of my Super Friends. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It all looks good to me. All right, we are back in the year 2021, and joining me once again is Kyle Benning. How's it going, Kyle? It's going as well as I can, I guess. How are you doing? <laughs> oh, life was so much simpler like five years ago whenever we recorded yeah. that last one. Think, think about this. I, I think the when we recorded the last one, we were about four months away. I think it was like four months to the day mm. before The Force Awakens dropped when we recorded that one. Yeah. And now we're in a post uh, – five Disney Star Wars movies and two seasons of Mandalorian world. So just think of how much different the Star Wars landscape is now than it was uh, how long ago that would have been, five and a half years. Everybody seemed so excited back then. Nobody ever thought that there would be a, a fandom war <laughs> over, over one of the movies or whether or not it was genius or whether or not it was an abomination and people not being able to agree and... Yeah, it's, what a difference a couple of years makes. But uh, yeah, yeah. Anywho, moving beyond that, um, thank you again for motivating me to dive back into the heart of this oft-forgotten title, "Tales of the Jedi." 
Again, for those of you listening, the original Tales of the Jedi volume ran just five issues. After that, subsequent stories featuring these characters were released as miniseries with new numbering. So then, we are now going to cover issues three through five. This is set at the same time and the same galaxy as the previous story with Ulic Keldroma, only now we are looking at The Saga of Nomi Sunrider. These three issues are written by Tom Veach. The art on Chapter 1, Issue 3, is by Janine Johnston with technical art assistance by John Nadeau. The art on Chapters 2 and 3, which is Issues 4 and 5, is by David Roach. Letters are by Willie Schubert, colors by Pamela Rambo, and the lusciously painted covers were by Dave Dorman. And Dan Thorsland edited the story. Uh, And just like we did for the last story, I'm going to recap all three issues back to back to back, and then we're going to discuss the story as a whole. Alright, Tales of the Jedi issue 3, on sale December 21st, 1993. Meet the Sunrider family. Ander, a young Jedi knight, his wife, Nomi, and their daughter, Vima. The Force is strong in the whole family, but Nomi Sunrider has foregone training to focus on raising little Vima, believing that she will someday be as powerful a Jedi as her father. The Sunriders, with their droid A3DO, 3D as they call him, fly to the Stennis system near the galactic frontier so that Ander can deliver Adigan crystals to Jedi Master Thon. During their trip, they stop at a crowded spaceport where Baga the Hutt, top of the criminal underworld, hears of the Jedi carrying valuable Adigan crystals. Baga orders one of his henchmen, Gudb, and two others to get the crystals. While the Sunriders are getting food, one of Baga's men starts a fight with 3D. Ander Sunrider goes to settle the conflict when Gudb sicks his lizard-like pet on the Jedi. The creature bites Ander on the neck and injects him with a lethal poison, killing him. Nomi runs to her fallen husband. Then his spirit, visible to Nomi and Vima, tells her she must take up his lightsaber and defend herself. Surrendering herself to the power of the Force and Ander's guidance, Nomi picks up the lightsaber and strikes down two of the killers. Gub runs off. Ander's ghost tells Nomi to continue the journey to meet Master Thon, who will teach her the ways of the Jedi. Nomi lands her ship on the planet Ambria. She sets out across the land with her daughter and the Adigan crystals, leaving 3D with the ship. Eventually, she comes upon a small house and a herd of bipedal animals grazing in the land. Baga the Hutt, in the meantime, has not given up on the crystals. They track the Sunrider ship, shooting 3D, and then follow Nomi's path. At the house, Nomi tells the alien rancher, Os Willem, her story while he cares for an older-looking one of the herd animals in his home. Os tells Nomi that he is a Jedi, but before she can give him the crystals, the ranch is attacked by Baga's goons. The Jedi rushes out to fight them off, but he is overpowered. Before the criminals kill him, the old animal rushes past Nomi. Blanketed in a kind of mystic force field, the animal charges into the hut's goons, throwing them off. Baga the Hut orders the hasty retreat. Os Willem thanks his master for the save and tells Nomi that the creature is Master Fawn, her new teacher. All right, Tales of the Jedi number four, on sale January 18th, 1994. Nomi and Vima have been with Master Thon for months, but he has yet to start training her. While Vima plays with small animals near the lake, Nomi senses the power of the dark side in the water. Two savage creatures come out, intent on eating Vima. 
Nomi uses her innate gift in the Force to convince the animals to attack each other instead. She takes Vima back to Thon's home, thinking about Ander along the way. Being married to a Jedi, always responding to crises and adventures, was a lonely and fearful life. But now that Ander is gone, Nomi knows that she must put aside her grief for the sake of her daughter. Elsewhere in the Stennis system, an ore hauler from one of the mining worlds is attacked by pirates, but the miners pay great Bagava Hut for protection, and after the pirates seize the valuable ore, they are then captured by Baga's ship. On Ambria, Os Willem fixes Nomi's droid A3DO. Twi'lek Jedi Tot Danita has come to meet with Master Thon. Thon sends Os Willem with Tot to go fight alongside Master Arca and the Jedi brothers Ulik and Kay Keldroma in the Freedon Nad uprising. Left behind with Master Thon, the Wizened One tells Nomi to use the Adigan crystals to construct her lightsaber. Nomi refuses. She doesn't like the weapon and never wants to touch a lightsaber again. Master Thon thinks she'll change her mind eventually, but until then, he plans a day trip for Nomi and Vima, and they set out across the land on his back. The captured pirates are taken to Great Baga's stronghold on one of the Stennis moons. Baga is upset that his underling, Gud, hasn't acquired the Adigan crystals yet. The captured pirate leader, Finhead Stonebone, is brought before Baga. The hut tells the pirate his only chance of survival is to kill Master Thon and capture the precious crystals. When Finhead refuses, Baga feeds the first mate to his pet Kitris, one of the deadly dragon creatures from the dark side lake near Thon's home. Knowing his fate, if he still refuses, the pirate Stonebone agrees to work for Baga and kill the Jedi Master. Tales of the Jedi number 5, on sale February 15, 1994. With Nomi and Vima on his back, Master Thon takes them on a rustic journey across his homeworld, all while telling Nomi about the Force and the Jedi's constant struggle against the dark side. He tells her the lightsaber is not simply a weapon for combat, a Jedi uses the lightsaber as a focusing instrument to help him or her achieve greater understanding of the Force. But Nomi repeats that she will not train with a lightsaber. Moving past that, Thon takes out a Jedi holocron. A holographic image of Jedi Master Udnar recounts for Nomi the history of the dark side, how evil men used its power to conquer and enslave, that whole planets and systems were destroyed by evildoers wielding the dark side, that even noble Jedi could fall victim to its power. Master Udnar issues a warning that darkness is rising again, and it will be up to the Jedi of Nomi's time to battle it. Thon offers Nomi his own lightsaber, but still she refuses. She doesn't want to live this life and decides that she will take her daughter away. As they head back, however, the pirates, led by Finhead Stonebone, arrive. They blast Thon's home, sending 3D running for cover. Thon tells Nomi that she must fight them, but she refuses. He encourages her to use the same force power that she used to compel the lake dragons to fight each other, but she won't. Thon tells her to run away with her daughter, but if Nomi won't fight, he won't either, so he surrenders to the pirates. As the pirates capture Thon and the hut enforcers find the Adigan crystals, Nomi realizes she has abandoned Thon to his death. She reaches out with the Force the same way she did when Vima was in danger, this time causing the hut enforcers and the pirates to start fighting each other over who will get credit from Baga. 
While they're brawling with each other, she takes out the lightsaber and rushes into their midst, cutting several of them down before they know what is happening. Nomi frees Master Than. The two of them, working together, drive the remaining pirates and enforcers off. Later that night, Nomi tells Than she believes he used the Force to help her overcome her hesitancy, but he denies it, believing everything she did and everything she will do in her life to become a great Jedi is part of her destiny. Alrighty, Kyle, what did you think of the saga of Nomi Sunrider? She's one badass character. Um, you know, at this point, I think she, I guess we would have had Dark Empire going that alluded to, to Leia training in the Jedi way, but um, as far as kind of a main focus and, and seeing her in action, I think she would have been about the first female Je- Jedi that uh, we would have been introduced to or at least that i would have uh when i first started picking these up yeah i mean if you're uh, if you're discounting like marvel continuity and uh like lumia as like a dark side user or something like that yeah yeah sorry i was thinking yeah dark no, or specifically right but, yeah, yeah I, um, I was the same way because i i hadn't read the the marvel I, I hadn't read those marvel comics at the time in fact i mean getting into my own history you know my my brother got me uh the dark empire trade paperback but my very first Star Wars comics that I got were issues three and four of this series. I, I actually I missed the first time around. I missed the the uh, Ulic Keldroma two parter. I didn't read those until I got the trade paperback. Um, but yeah, my first Star Wars comics that I bought myself were issues three and four, the beginning of this story. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I, I would have actually been introduced to her via the Star Wars: The Essential Guide to Characters mm, yeah. by Andy Mangles. Yeah, um, that was published by Del Rey. And Actually, so, I, I think she, I think she even appeared on the cover of that. Like there was a, there's an yeah, image she, of her in issue four when she's standing with Vima with the like the wind blowing in her hair. Yeah. Yes, and then it's uh, she has a three page write up in here, and there are four total illustrations, and then the the more expanded picture of her with her daughter is one of the the pictures on the third page, and so. Yes, I was familiar with some of the artwork from this and then kind of her story before I ever read this because I, I used to just pour through this uh, this character guide as a kid. And, you know, this was before I was aware of the Dark Horse comics. And so, was, you know, you could tell these are comic illustrations like, where are these coming from? This, who are all these characters <laughs> and stuff? So I, I was pretty stoked that when I did finally get my hands on these issues from a garage sale and actually got to read her story. Uh, according to this guide, and I need to check this out is she, her first appearance was actually in dark horse comics, number seven. And so for dark horse, you had dark horse presents, which was the anthology title it launched with in 1986. And then I think it was around 1991 or 1992. They started a 25 issue run. That was just dark horse comics. And it was the same premise anthology stuff, but it was with all their licensed properties. So I think the first issue I think was aliens, Predator, RoboCop, and Time Cop. And I think those were all four-part stories. So you had those four features through the first four issues. And then after that, they started to incorporate Star Wars um, comics and stuff in there as well. I know there were some droid stories and everything that that ran in there. Um, So I I need to go back and uh, pick up more of those Dark Horse comics. I do not have number seven, so I need to get my hands on that and check that out. Yeah, I'm trying to think what it would have been, like, if it was before this. If it was a story set after this, or if it was just like, if she was just alluded to it, maybe the story's about something else, but there's like a preview of her or something. Yeah. Maybe it's a uh, adventure of her husband and her. Yeah. Yeah. It could have been. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I think, well, I mean, you could, you could probably look it up right there, but what is Ulrich Keldroma's first listed appearance? Is it tales of the Jai one or is it like dark empire issue four? His is listed as star Wars, dark empire. Number five. 
Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So even if it's it, it's just like the back matter related in that in the text piece from that, I think. Yep. Um, yeah. I mean, like if she's got an appearance in in issue seven, it might not be a story about her. It might be something much more sort of tangential. I don't know. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. It, it might be interesting to find that to pick that up. Yep. I'm gonna have to do that. So. But yeah, I mean. The previous story—it's funny because the you know these two stories are are unevenly matched because the first one was two issues and this one is three. The first one had a lot more action, you know, it, like right off the bat we get into it and it's this great little adventure story. This one is more of a slower build. Uh, we get bursts of action, but it's really three issues to set up. Uh, to, to basically get Nomi to the place where she will fight as a Jedi, where she will commit to that. Um, she is definitely, she is the, the reluctant hero. This is the first act of her story. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I always kind of found her fascinating. For one thing, just, I mean, as you said right off the bat, I mean, this was the first time I saw a woman carrying a lightsaber. We, we never got that from the movies. And, or, I mean, I'd seen, I'd seen Leia do it in, in Dark Empire. You're right. But this was like a brand new character with a history I didn't know and, and a story I didn't know. And I was like, there's this, you know, powerful badass woman on the cover of issue five holding off like this entire group of like pirates and raiders with his lightsaber. And I was like, who is this woman? But the story, like when you, when you says that, I mean, she's a very interesting character. The fact that she, she, I mean, you, you would think she'd be very passive because she forewent her career as a Jedi to be this housewife and this mom. You know, she's she's known that she had this power, but she's like, no, that's that's not the life I want to live. It, it reminds me of like the, you know, the wife of a cop or a firefighter who you know always sends her husband out there expecting at any time he, he might not be coming home. You know, or, or the wife of a soldier, never knowing when he'll be back or something like that, and that lonely kind of life. But it's it requires a whole lot of inner strength that she's dealing with, but also a sense of, I mean, I mean, she kind of, she has reason because she thinks that like the, the life of the Jedi took him away from her family all along. She kind of, I think she, she resents it a little bit and she doesn't want it. And she might be a little bit scared of it and a little bit distrustful of the force and the ways of the Jedi. So it takes a, a you know, a whole, a, basically a whole lot until this guy, Master Thon, who she started to care about, it's only when he is really threatened that she sees it up close that she's willing to pick up the lightsaber herself. And I just thought that was a really cool journey. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, you see the her play the support role and then kind of get thrust into the role of the reluctant hero. And then we get to follow her on that, that journey. One thing I, I really like just about this series in general, you know, we talked about it way back when, um, whether it was the original episode or the kind of the tie-in episode we did on just uh, revisiting what what the term Sith meant or the connotation it meant to us, but uh-huh. you know, I, I like you know at this point, right? There's some expanded universe novels, but really what they're pulling from is elements of the Force we've been introduced to that haven't been explained, and I feel like Veach does a a good job of skirting the line here of giving us more of that stuff without over-explaining it as well, still leaving some mystery around it. Um, but I really like the idea of you know certain planets or, or parts of planets having ties to either the light side or the force or the dark side of the force so this idea that there's this whole sea or these lakes that are just overflowing with dark side energy and they have these creatures in there that are these why wouldn't they why wouldn't animals or, or beasts also be you know attuned to the force whether that's master thon or the the lake creatures you know this idea that um, and kind of 
goes into Nomi's path. Uh, it'll continue in the the next arc as well as this idea of this battle meditation, yeah, and uh, kind of being able to to send this this force energy to to impact things. I mean, those dark force animals essentially have the same thing. It's it's almost like this palpable fear or tentativeness that that paralyzes their victims. That that's how they're using the dark force or dark side of the force. Uh, I guess is to kind of send out those vibes to just paralyze their their prey and, and then eat it. And that, I thought that was a really interesting concept. So, w- what did you think of? Uh, I guess how the forces portrayed in these three issues. I, I I loved it. I and I liked it at the time, and I I think I have a different appreciation now. But certainly at the time in the '90s, as a kid reading it with so much less exposure and again like this is like they're sort of still building the universe from the ground up at this point they're really just this is just expanding off of the we only had like six hours of star wars you know in the in the movies to build up but yeah this idea of like the these lakes are just filled with dark side energy and it reminded me of the on dagobah the dark side tree why does yoda live so close to a thing like that why is there why why does he have a home with a place like that nearby that he could like walk to or something like that doesn't that seem kind of sketchy or something well is it there for the purposes of training is he is he trying to keep the dark side at bay there or are they weirdly attracted to each other that's it's kind of mystery thing but i I definitely think i mean but because than is kind of the same way you know he says he's there you know like kind of keeping the dark side contained there but just when she goes there, I mean, she hears voices coming from the lake. She sees the monsters there or something. So just by being in that proximity of feeling it, I mean, it could potentially corrupt her, but if she's strong enough, it's also something that she needs to overcome as part of her training. And Fawn being a master and a teacher is aware of that. So there might be that, that little purpose. And I also want to come back to like the reveal of Fawn anyway. But uh, as I was saying, like, yeah, reading, reading this again today, um, and, and going back and listening to the episode that we did years ago, you touched upon something that I, I didn't see then, but I do now. Um, when you talked about, uh, you, you made like a comparison to Conan. Um, and I definitely feel that more now. Part of it was just, I, I've, I've read so much more Conan the Barbarian material now and, and like Savage Sword magazines and stuff like that. And I, I feel like Tom Veach might have been playing with the Robert E. Howard pulp mythos as a genre and weaving that in because star wars you know is full of so many genres but we didn't really have much of that in the movies and i feel like tom beach was kind of keying into those old like this is this this is the hyborian age of star wars oh exactly Um, so he's really going into much more of that sword and sandal and and that fantasy thing so because of that the force, the way it's used, and the dark side feel more magical. It feels it has more of that that mysticism that the practitioners of the Sith, like not like Freedom Nad and the people that we're going to be talking about in future episodes, they're much more like the the dark wizards and the people that Conan would have to like slice up and like cut their heads off and stuff like that that he that he was frequently coming in contact with. So I I really felt more of that comparison reading it this time, and it's because I've read so much more Conan in the years between then and now. So I like that a lot. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, I, I probably would have been discovering kind of both of those worlds and diving deep into them at the same time uh, as a kid. You know, just gobbling up those Conan tales at the same time as when I got my hands finally on all these uh, tales of the Jedi stories. And so I, 
I guess they they probably informed my love of both of them. I was kind of reciprocating, I guess, uh, reading both of those uh, so much as a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are little bits about the Jedi that we get in here. And first of all, I like this idea that it's it's not they don't make a big deal about it, but it's just kind of like under understood that. Ander trained under a master named Chama, who we never see, we never meet him or whatever. But Ander is this young Jedi Knight, and he says that his master was Chama. But in the beginning of these, he's going to see this other master, Master Fan, and he's going to bring this gift of these crystals to help focus lightsabers. And he's planning to stay with him and train more. And I always liked that idea that just because a Jedi becomes a Jedi Knight, they don't stop learning. They don't stop training. Um, there's always more wisdom to gain. Like, and especially because Master Chama might have had one particular view of the Force, and Master Fan has had different experiences and different views. And a, a Jedi Knight who is scholarly and, and wise will learn from different masters. And tr- like the, the same way a doctor goes through, you know, different residency periods with different, you know, uh, specialties and things like that before they before they graduate and move on. I, I just kind of like that idea that he's a Jedi Knight, he trained under one master, and now he's going to stay with another master and learn something completely different. And I always just really, really liked that idea. And actually, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily have been the first time because in the Timothy Zahn trilogy that preceded this, or would have been coming out close to the same time, in the second book, Dark Force Rising, Luke goes to stay with Joris Saboth to, to train under him before he realizes that he's an insane clone. <laughs> but but yeah. Luke like stays with him for a little while and like trains under him. So I just I, I thought that that kind of whole idea of the way the Jedi's kind of you know, they, they have little internships under different masters. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I really dug that and since I I guess I'd never really thought about it too much. I just kind of accepted that because I'd read this at such a impressionable age in my Star Wars fandom that, you know, I just figured that was kind of natural, right? We saw Luke begin his training with Obi-Wan and then go to Yoda, you know, and just this idea that different Jedi masters might be masters of different aspects. Right. And, and we'll see uh, Nomi go uh, to train with uh, Voto Siask Bas for uh, lightsaber training. And right. Then, she will go spend time with Arca to better hone her battle meditation yeah. um, force power and everything. So the idea of just becoming well-rounded, which is a cool thing, soldiers the, or warriors. Um, yeah. And it's a cool, it's a unique thing that they set apart for her right away. This idea that she has this empathic power of reaching into different people or, or even creatures or something like that. And, if necessary, pitting them against each other. But like the fact that she can do that on such a massive scale, I mean, it's one thing to do those to, to get the animals to attack each other. But at the end, when Fawn is in danger, and she's got like 20 bad guys, 20 heavily armed pirates and enforcers, and she gets them to turn on each other, that's just a really cool display of her power. I like that. And then, yeah, Fawn, I mean, I, I love that reveal at the end of issue three when they find out, oh, this Jedi Master, it's, it's an inversion or it's a play on the same thing the first time you meet Master Yoda when Luke is expecting this great warrior and it turns out to be this diminutive little hermit elf type of creature. Uh, and it's, it's this total, like, just play on your expectations that makes it wonderful. And now we're going to take that even to the more extreme, because when she first shows up, she thinks this, yeah, there's a, this, this alien, but he's a humanoid Jedi named Oss, and she's sure that he's the master, but nope. 
the Master Jedi is this big thing that looks like a Triceratops, except it doesn't have the like the horns coming out of its head or something like that. It is this big lumbering animal, but it can speak and it can feel and it can charge and it's dangerous, but it's it can't wield the lightsaber. It's not humanoid at all, so it has a completely different understanding. And that blew my mind when I was a kid. I was like, maybe there are Jedi Masters or Force users that live in the ocean that have ne- that can never come up and and to train under those like like how different would that be that would be just crazy so i always like that reveal no, that's a cool idea <laughs> yeah yeah this the, the whole series just just feels like star wars to me i mean part of that is they hit the the beats kind of tie in um i thought both artists did did a great job uh, of kind of hitting the, the familiar familiar beats to kind of anchor you into the the Star Wars world. Um, I would say, uh, although they are different, Janine Johnston. Yeah. Oh yeah, Janine Johnson on uh, issue three. She kind of has more of a. It gives me almost like a, a '90s animation vibe. Like if there was a Star Wars cartoon in the '90s, uh, uh, kind of how it would look. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. Um, you know, David Roach's art. Uh, I, I feel like the anatomy and rendering is is done both uh, are done really well by both of them. Um, but then you see that kind of lighter, simpler line style um, in issue three compared to David Roach's stuff in issues four and five are much more heavier, you know, heavier blacks um, kind of what you'd expect at the, at the time here um, with the kind of the nineties and, and some of the grit that's added there, but both of them, you know, use those kind of physical anchors to, to pull us into the star Wars world. I mean, this story's happening on the planet Ambria, yeah. but it looks like a desert planet, kind of like Tatooine. Like yep. ties us in there. We got a we got a hut. We got a lot of the kind of familiar faces of like the weak ways, and you know, there's like the bat creature and stuff that we saw at the uh, most Isley Cantina. So a lot of kind of familiar looking Star Wars characters to kind of suck you in there. The, the huts still have those uh, those um, air scaffs, those, those like you know, yep. air, like even though this is supposed to be four thousand years earlier. It's like really technology is the same. Um, I, the 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 probably the biggest note I had between the differences in the art styles between the two um, is Nomi and her hairstyle. Yeah. Um, yeah. It it is a very severe hair in issue three. It's like her her hairline is way way back, and it almost like she has like these two little two little like splotches of hair like that would almost like as if they would like come out around like like horns or something but they're just little divots or something like that yeah she's got like a super widow's peak with yeah, uh, yeah. these two kind of patches of hair that come down almost to her eyelashes yeah and i wonder her when eyebrows they, when they got david roach to pick up the story and finish it i wonder if the editor was like can we you know just make her look more classically beautiful like just give her like a normal hairstyle <laughs> i don't know os willems style uh, changes pretty drastically too um, between the two issues and stuff you know he's issue three he almost uh, his hair or I don't know if that's supposed to be like throbbing veins coming off the top of his brain or whatever yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of like a Gorgon or like a Medusa look and it's pretty different looking um, yeah, from here on out then yeah his, his head is weird and it looks like because we, he's, we see him again in Dark Lords of the Sith and I just I remember yeah, I think there's just something about his head. It looks like he's got like worms or snakes in his hair, but I don't think they're they move. It's just a weird kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I love the look of Bagada Great's uh, palace in uh, 
in issue four when we get the exterior shot and everything like that. Um, because, you know, huts have to have great palaces, but his looks, you know, like much more like a, I don't know, looks like a temple or something like in, uh, in India or the subcontinent or like Malaysia or something like that. But I just love the roads going up to it, having like these giant, like sort of gargoyle statuesque, like monster things or whatever. And like the roads seem to go into the mouths in order to like go to the next level. I like that. Yeah, David Roach really knocked it out of the park between that and then that double-page splash on page 8 and 9 where we see the mining ship that's made out of like these giant wasp exoskeletons and stuff. Yeah. That is that is a really stunning uh, double-page splash and pretty awesome. I, I do wonder about the, the genesis of that spaceship, if that was something Roach came up with or if Veach gave him any sort of indication or, or guidance there like, hey – Try to incorporate it. I, I don't know. I, I would be interested to hear the genesis behind that, but it, that is a sweet looking ship. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And there's there's a lot of great world building in this. I mean, they they talk about the you know Ambria being part of this star system that's mining base, and it's known as the Stennis Nodes, and uh, we get all this information about all the the mining stuff that they pull out and everything. It's just a lot of a lot of awesome world building for that that we wouldn't necessarily need, but it definitely enhances the the story and pulls us in and, and gives us another corner into the Star Wars universe that we haven't been exposed to in the past. Yeah. Uh, I remember being being surprised at how quickly and seemingly in, in like easily um, Andor is killed. Um, just poisoned during like this uh, this at- attack and everything like that. But like and clearly because it's he walks into a trap. I mean this is a setup for him and he just doesn't see it coming and how easy like that just seemed like Really, you can trick a Jedi like that? Like, I don't think, like, <laughs> after 1999, I don't think you could ever believably have a Jedi walk into a trap like that and get killed that easily. But it just seemed... Well, it, see, to yeah. to me, it, it just reminded me of uh, Revenge of the Sith, when then all of a sudden, uh, you know, we've been seeing these guys just wipe yeah, out, yeah, you know, that's, that's true. hundreds of droids at a, once, and then all of a sudden just get shot in the back of their, their clone troopers and get wiped out there. That was, that's true. You know, you hear about uh, Darth Vader hunting down and, and killing all the Jedi. I didn't think it was just going to be, you know, they got shot in the back by stormtroopers. Wait, wait, these are the same guys that couldn't hit anybody <laughs> a couple years later, right? So yeah. I, yeah. I, I guess reading that through, I, I can overlook that and say, well, some Jedi just, they don't see it coming. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, like, yeah, just looking at the story again, I'm just, I'm reminded, I mean, how much like this, blew my mind but also kind of like set my expectations for star wars and like just the world of what you could do with jedi knights and jedi characters and and the force in this world um and uh, yeah i mean revisiting it again today i mean i i still maintain like this would be these would be good stories to adapt if they wanted to make movies that had nothing to do with the skywalker saga and things like that. I mean, I think Nomi is a, a really compelling and interesting character um, to see her journey and to see her growth, and, and especially the way it sort of parallels the fall of Keldroma that we'll we'll learn more about. So, yeah, totally agree. I mean, for me, I mean a lot of nostalgia blinders and everything, but especially in the in the '90s, I really felt like Dark Horse really tapped into, captured, and then helped to define what the the feel or scope of Star Wars was to me. And so the original three movies, these comics, uh, especially the, the Tales of the Jedi comics, and then the Mandalorian, I feel, just hits those same vibes um, for me. And that's really kind of yeah. Star Wars for me. And there's yeah. aspects of the other six movies that I really enjoy. But honestly, if I, <laughs> it, 
if, if it was one of those desert island questions where you could only take uh three movies two seasons of a tv show and some comics i would be okay with, <laughs> with this just stuff as my uh star wars defining with that very um, specific requirement yeah yeah yeah, be, yeah 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 so but yeah. but yeah i mean it'd be great if they'd uh look at some of this stuff and maybe look at maybe doing a, a tales of the jedi type uh, tv show um, i don't know I, I feel like obviously all this stuff is considered legends now and kind of thrown out but i feel like they must have revisited this series or something uh before making the rise of skywalker because i felt like there was a lot of elements like along in exegol and kind of the sith world and all the statues and the mm-hmm. iconography and stuff that i feel like pulls a lot from future issues in, in miniseries of this tales of the jedi series and so yeah i don't know maybe we'll see it make it come back yeah i mean for the long for a long time i mean what we what we know about the sith will be informed by this series going forward over the next couple of miniseries um and then that will be certainly revised and there will they'll make some changes that came about in the late 90s once once george went back to do his movies and they kind of reasserted what's sort of the nature of the sith but uh a lot of it will be coming back to these and I do want to talk about the covers a little bit uh, oh, before yeah, I yeah, talk actually. about the covers, I guess um, I will. I do want to listen to a lot more uh, art podcasts and stuff that have focused a lot on, on color and everything. And so I do have a new appreciation for color work in comics. And I do want to say that uh, Pamela Rambo's colors in all three issues are, are stellar. And I feel like uh, Dark Horse does not get enough credit maybe because they started as a black and white company, but really being early adopters in the 90s to really kind of premium formats, nice paper, nice, great uh, color tones and separations and everything. And uh, and these had $2.50 cover prices, right? So they were kind of a little bit more of a deluxe package. I'm sure some of that had to do with covering the licensing fees, Um, but it's a really nice product. They didn't phone it in for it being a licensed licensed comic. And so it's a really nice overall package and and great, great color work and, and paper quality and everything. I mean, you go back and look at some comics, uh, you know, that are a little older, <laughs> really blurry uh, color, and you see this, the paper kind of start to eat some of the color and, it, and not hold up very well over time. But, man, my, my issues still just look pristine, and uh, the color is really vibrant and, and great uh, kind of contrast and stuff throughout. So awesome color work. Um, for the covers, the one cover I, I have to talk about here is issue three. I, I would love to see what Dave Dorman's reference is because – I have not been able to look at this cover since the first time I laid eyes on it, which uh, I think was in that magazine that I still cannot figure out <laughs> what it was. Um, but but then when I got my hands on it, this pose that Nomi's in, I mean, she's holding her child and, you know, her husband's laying there dead at her, at her knees. She's crouched down. My grandparents had a painting of Jesus where he's in this exact pose, <laughs> not not holding a baby or anything. But there's like a, where he's like leaning up, up against a rock and there's this ray of like sunlight coming down from heaven and stuff on like this exact pose. And I just, to this day, every time I see this cover, all I can think of is that painting that my grandparents had in their house. So it does, um, it does have a sort of Renaissance feel of that, like a painting, like a, like a Botticelli or Michelangelo worked on this one. Yeah. I can definitely see it. It definitely, it evokes that same type of thing. I see it. And then of course I've been trying to, or is the enunciation is Mary looking up at the angel. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. I, I've been trying to Google like, trying to describe it as well as I can in the Google search, trying to find that Jesus painting, of course. And now I can't, you know, I, I have no idea who, who got that when my, my grandma died a few years ago, but I'm just like, ah, oh, now I didn't see the, the, the painting this reminds me of. Um, and then as a kid, that same magazine, uh, had the, the cover to issue four in it as well. And that always invoked to me, um, 
by that by the point I would have saw this, Shadows of the Empire would have came out. And so I had the you know the Leia's Boosk bounty hunter figure that came out in that line that obviously we saw her in at the yes. beginning of Return of the Jedi, but it always gave me that vibe of kind of Leia in that bounty hunter costume disguise in front of Jabba in the in the throne room there. So it was again nice work by Dorman to kind of see the the grading there of what could be a Sarlacc pit and everything. It kind of type taps into that uh Mm-hmm. Star Wars iconography that we're familiar with to, to really hook you and pull you in. Yeah, I got these at the same time, and I, w- I remember looking at that. I was like, "Is that is that Jabba the Hutt or something like that?" I just assumed I mean, it looks like a painted reference from Jabba the Hutt, and then uh, and then whatever the creature, the alien skulking in front of him, and then he's just like, "Does he have crocodiles? Is this like a southern like Florida <laughs> Jabba the Hutt?" Like he just got these pet gators. Uh. Um, and then yeah, issue the issue five for me is just like one of those all time iconic images for Star Wars. Just with Nomi with the lightsaber and the background is like you see all like the backs of the the goons and everything in the foreground in front of her. Very very cool. Love them. Yep. All right, Kyle. Um, anything else you're working on that we should know about before we before we go? Yeah. So I I have been putting out uh, episodes uh, lately on my. Uh, feed king size comic giant size fun which is kscgsf for short that's what i got the feed called uh i believe you can find those episodes on apple podcasts as well as uh, stitcher uh otherwise you can go to king size comics giant size fun blogspot.com and download the the episodes directly there or check out my lips and page um and uh starting here in march i'll have my dark horse presents podcast where i'll be looking at uh issues of my favorite anthology, Dark Horse Presents, as well as kind of having special episodes that highlight story arcs or individual issues of the, the tons of great character-owned stories or, or property uh, adaptions that Dark Horse has done over the last 35 years. Uh, so uh, check that out. Uh, there'll be the occasional Star Wars-themed uh, episode and stuff on that. So That's very cool. So much good stuff from Dark Horse Comics Presents. That was a DHCP. That was always a good one. I like that read. Yeah. Alrighty, uh, folks, we are going to take a promo break right now, and then I will be back to read your listener feedback from the last episode. Don't go away. My name is Jesse, a Trekkie. A radiation wave hit and I got shot through a wormhole. And now I'm on some distant corner of the galaxy on a podcast, an index show about a strange science fiction series. Help me, please. Is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm co-hosting with an insane Farscape fan. I'm doing everything I can. I'm just looking for a way home. What the Frell, a Farscape podcast. Available only on the Council of Geeks podcast network. All right, I'm back, and hopefully those two different segments recorded six years apart from each other didn't sound too weird. This wasn't like a Frankenstein episode. Hope it sounded okay. Hope you got the gist of it, and I hope you enjoyed those stories as much as we did. Anyway, uh, this is the listener feedback section, and first up, we have a late comment on episode 40, which was the Boba Fett special that I did with Neil and Chris and Jason. Fellow Fire and Water All-Star, the irredeemable Shag, said, Loved this conversation. Made me rethink Boba Fett's appearance in The Mandalorian. At first, I was excited by the tease of him at the end of Season 2, Episode 1. But by the time he was simply their pilot, I was feeling let down. Y'all made lots of good points about possible future directions. And now I'm thinking about reading those Legends Boba Fett novels. Some of the few classic Legends Star Wars books I avoided back in the day. I 
was worried they'd ruin the mystique of Boba Fett by getting into his head too much. Thanks for pointing me in that direction. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I confess I've never read those books either, the the Bounty Hunters trilogy or Bounty Hunter Wars trilogy, I don't know, yeah. Um, I know the story because my best friend in high school had read them and he loved them, he told me all about them, and of course getting the gist from reading the essential chronology and other books like that, but I've never actually read them, so if you do read them, Shag, let me know. Uh, He continues, regarding our love of Boba Fett back in the 1980s, I think it goes beyond just the cool jetpack ads. Boba Fett was one of the earliest figures promoted for Empire Strikes Back. If memory serves, I had his action figure before the movie even came out. Combine the early hype that he was important and having an action figure with him being so mysterious and cool in Empire Strikes Back. I spent the next three years playing out action figure adventures where Boba Fett was a complete badass. Oh, and he was strangely into Princess Leia, but I might have been working through some other issues there. Nothing strange about that to me, not at all. Anyway, Shag continues, I was Mandalorian <laughs> I was Mandalorian before it was cool. Check out my Boba Fett underroos shirt that I wore as an everyday shirt. Uh, and Shag provided an old family photo wearing that shirt, which you can see uh, in the comments section on the post at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Moving on to the last episode, which was the Ahsoka Tano special featuring Stella, Chris, and my hilarious wife, Angela. First comment came from Chris Franklin, my ride-or-die partner on Batman Nightcast. Chris said, I took our son Andrew to see the Clone Wars film when it was in theaters, and honestly, it turned me off really wanting to invest in the series. I watched it on occasion with him, but it never hooked me. Ahsoka came across as a bit of a Wendy and Marvin add-on in some ways. Nowhere nearly as annoying as Marvin, but still the precious little add-on character shoehorned into the narrative to attract a young audience. On the other hand, I got why the show needed her. The central protagonist had already been established as a traitor and child killer. Yeah, problematic there. Uh, But over the years, Chris continues, I picked up enough knowledge to know Ahsoka grew through her appearances on Clone Wars and Rebels, and that she had indeed become a favorite character. So when I heard she was going to be on Mando, I was excited. I had no idea her appearance would spark such interest in my daughter, Danny, who immediately went to Disney Plus and began binging the whole series. I caught quite a few episodes with her, and I enjoyed every episode where she took the spotlight. We just watched the finale last week, and that was phenomenal. Looking forward to jumping into Rebels next. I had no idea Angela was so into Star Wars. Maybe she should be hosting the show, especially when Ryan's Jedi faith wanes. Eh, we don't want to give her too many ideas. She'll, she'll take that one to heart. Uh, we, she will be back on the show in the future at, at some point if we're, we're planning to do a, a book review, if we both get the book read, read on time. But. Uh, Neil Daly, my semi-permanent co-host of Fire and Water Records, felt the opposite, saying the episode could have been great if not for his know-nothing sister-in-law. Yeah, good thing she's not going to hear this, because I'd be the one paying for it. Thanks, Neil. Uh, Tim Price from the Outcasters podcast over on the Right On Network said, I noticed no one mentions the first Clone Wars cartoon anymore, which actually came out between episodes 2 and 3. Being a big Samurai Jack fan, I enjoyed it quite a lot and wish it got more attention. Ah, well, I must be alone in my fandom. Uh, Tim, you are definitely not alone in this respect. Uh, I've heard from a lot of people who fondly remember the 
was it Gendy Tartakovsky Clone Wars cartoon, which is, I think, done for Cartoon Network. I only saw one episode. I barely remember it. I just, I wasn't into it at the time. Um, but from what I have heard from a lot of folks, they, they really, really like the style and the action in that cartoon. Um, but yeah, apparently it's almost impossible to find anywhere without paying some obscene price for the DVDs. Um, like, you can find them on eBay or comic, comic conventions or something, but... Maybe, maybe at some point, if if Lucasfilm hasn't disavowed it, maybe it'll get an official release, but who knows. Anyway, Tim said, That cartoon made me more willing to give the Clone Wars movie and series a chance from the beginning. I had the same problems everybody has, knowing too much about the future and why get invested in these characters. But somehow that didn't stop me from following along and just enjoying the ride. Seeing Ahsoka's arc was quickly the best part. Still, I had cut the cable by the time Rebels aired, and I was too cheap to pay for its episodes, so that remained unwatched until Disney+. Plus. I made the leap, and wow, that was fantastic. And then Clone Wars the final season. I'm right with all of you that the conclusion was phenomenal and justified following the series all along. Loved it. And completely unintentionally, I watched Rebels and the final season shortly before Mandalorian's second season began, which was excellent happenstance. The Force must have been with me. And I'll just say that I am plenty intrigued about seeing Ahsoka's live-action series. Very cool, very cool. Uh, David Ace Gutierrez said, I went back to watch those Clone Wars episodes Angela Daly recommended. They were just terrific. Don't, don't give her too much credit. You're going to ruin things. Uh, David said, I may not have the popular position here, but I thought Ahsoka's Mandalorian appearance as played by Dawson was just okay. She wasn't given much to work with, and to be frank, I don't know how much range she has. She more or less played the same emotional beats in that Texas noir show of hers, but I am intrigued by how this goes, though animation is much better medium for Star Wars than the stilted and limited live-action stuff. Ah, uh, not sure about that. Uh, well, I think I think the next comment might address a little bit of the, that style. Um, uh, Mike Dine said, I really enjoyed this discussion as it really highlights something missing from my Star Wars viewing experience, the female perspective. For too long, I have enjoyed Star Wars by myself, then with my two sons, so I really enjoyed hearing Angela and Stella's views on Ahsoka. They both pointed out some neat characteristics of Ahsoka that never occurred to me. Now I want to go back and watch The Clone Wars all over again with those points in mind. Like most of you, I came to Clone Wars and Rebels late, but once I got Disney+, Plus, me and my kids sat down and watched the whole thing. We enjoyed both series, but I agree with Chris on the maturity arc of Clone Wars. Those first two seasons are like a lot of cartoons for kids, and I can see how Ahsoka could come off as a bratty sidekick. But by season three, she starts maturing, and the stories are being developed with her in mind. The storytelling gets more mature as well, and of course, by the final season, all those moments play off as the audience really cares what happens to Ahsoka because we've all been on this journey with her. As for her appearance in The Mandalorian, it was interesting hearing your reasons on how Ahsoka handled Grogu. Like Chris, again, I didn't have a problem with it at the time. She seemed to me like Luke in The Last Jedi, though that's quite divisive. She's been around the block and had some fit... She's been around the block and seen some things. She's older, wiser, but also more hesitant to take life-altering chances. I understand the character goes out of her way to help people. That's one of the reasons I love the character. But since she still seems to be on a quest to find Ezra and Thrawn, 
taking on training Grogu would be a huge commitment and one that could put her in serious danger, possibly even leave Ezra alone with Thrawn. But like I said above, the points of Stella and Angela never occurred to me, so now I want to go back and watch the episode with those points in mind. Brian Linton said, I first encountered Ahsoka in the Clone Wars movie. At first, I assumed that she would die at the end of the series, which would help to fuel Anakin's turn to the dark side. As a result, I tried to keep my emotional distance from the character. But by the Season 3 episodes Padawan Lost and Wookiee Hunt, I was a full-on Ahsoka fan. This is probably a good place to say that my daughter and I finally finished watching The Mandalorian. It actually took longer than I expected to reach the end of Season 2, because after watching the Jedi episode, my daughter decided to binge-watch all four seasons of Rebels, which she hadn't seen before, to catch Ahsoka's appearances there. She was also motivated to learn more about Thrawn, the Darksaber, Mandalorians in general, and Sabine Wren in particular. She is eagerly looking forward to the Ahsoka series and desperately wants to see Sabine in live action. Yeah, I I think that's just a matter of time. I definitely think we'll see her in the next year or two on one of these shows. And finally, Shag came back to leave a comment on the Ahsoka episode. He said, For me, I felt the same as Angie about Ahsoka's performance, meaning I felt like I was watching Rosario Dawson play a character rather than embody the character. But I was coming at it from a different direction. I think for me, it comes from the fact that everyone on the show is so subdued emotionally. It's hard to get invested in some side characters in the show because everyone's emotional range is finite, and that comes from the lead Mandalorian setting the tone of the show. And that works, except when you want to cheer and punch the air at a new character. I've never followed the Clone Wars cartoon and have only seen two seasons of Rebels, so my familiarity with the character of Ahsoka is very minor. However, I have seen Rosario Dawson, henceforth known as Space Night Nurse, in lots of roles, and she's an excellent actress with a fantastic range. But here, Space Night Nurse was again very subdued. As essentially a new character for me, it was hard to see past the actress and see the character. Same could be said for Katie Sackhoff as Bo-Katan, henceforth known as Mando Starbuck. (laughs) Again, exceptional actress, but with Mando Starbuck being so restrained emotionally and my lack of familiarity with the character from the cartoons, I felt like I was watching the actress play a part rather than embody the part. The lack of emotion totally works for the Mandalorian, and it really sparks when you get characters who don't subdue their emotions. I think that's particularly why one of my favorite characters is Amy Sedaris in the part of Peli, henceforth known as Space Linda Lavin. (laughs) Space Land 11, in comparison to Mando, is larger-than-life fun and hilarious. I adore her character regardless of where I might have seen the actress before and totally believe her in the role. Yeah, so... Looking at... Thinking about what David David Gutierrez had to say and what Shag had to say, um, I... I've only seen... Rosario Dawson in, in a few things, uh, the Marvel Netflix series, some of those. Um, Rent, I think, I, I loved her in the movie version of Rent. Um, but I think she's fine. I think she, for the material that she's been given, I've always liked her. I've always been impressed. Um, I, I, I have no idea what, I, I wouldn't know how to judge her range based on the limited mop that I've seen her in. Um, for this particular role, I mean... It's it's really hard to judge someone's acting ability when they're playing a Jedi Knight because the as Shake pointed out, like these are characters who repress so so much. Um, that's why I really think 
I, I mean, whatever grievous sins the, the sequel trilogy might be guilty of, uh, Daisy Ridley and Adam Driver deliver phenomenal performances in those three movies across the board. They are just terrific um, for being these types of characters. And Mark Hamill in The Last Jedi as well. But, but I mean, otherwise, I mean, you look at the Clone Wars cartoons and you look at the, the prequel movies, I mean, the Jedi are portrayed a, a particular way, and it is not hysterical or emotional or comical or just very expressive in general. You know, they're they're not the Han Solo character. They're not the Lando. They're not the fun ones in general. Uh, the fun comes from their actions and their swashbuckling uh, physical mannerisms and, and, and plot points. Yeah, I mean, Ahsoka was always kind of broke that mold because of her youth and her the, the age gap between her and everybody else in the Clone Wars. But at this point in her life, she certainly seems to be a bit more cautious and a little bit more guarded. Maybe it's just the fact that it's the first time the actress is trying on a new part and they were just, you know, a new, a new director is taking a chance on this thing. So... Who knows? I, I didn't have a problem with the performance of it, but I can understand other people that might have, so... Anyway, um, that is going to wrap up this episode, but you shan't wait long for the next one. On episode 43, me and a couple of other guys are going to be reviewing the novel Light of the Jedi, the first chapter in the multi-book, multi-genre series called The High Republic. I've mentioned this before, but it is a new line of Star Wars adventures set 200 years before the movies, so we have a brand new cast of characters, except... Yes, Yoda is still kicking around. Uh, these stories are being told in novels, young reader books, kids' books, picture books, and comic books. Uh, and they're really covering a whole print publishing spectrum uh, to tell this one big epic story. Uh, anyway, so the next episode will be a review of the first book in that series. So if you want to read it or listen to the audiobook between now and then, go for it. Uh, and hopefully, before too long, Kyle and I will be back to cover the next chapter in Tales of the Jedi coverage. Uh, it took five and a half years between chapters one and two. Hoping it doesn't take that long this time. Cross my fingers. All right, until later. Give Me Those Star Wars is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Give Me Those Star Wars. You can also find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. All music, audio clips, or quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. Give Me Those Star Wars is not affiliated with Disney or Lucasfilm, and I make no money from this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. Thank you.